Now, I don't know about you, I love certain types of movies. One type of movie that I love is the war movie, battle scenes. I love a good battle scene. Is there anybody else in the church that loves a good battle scene? Come on now, don't be afraid. Love a good battle scene. Okay, there's a few hands. I expected a little bit more. You know, one of my favorite scenes, in all honesty, uh, one of my favorite movies is a trilogy, and that's Lord of the Rings. Um, in that, we, we, you can actually see a number of analogies uh, with regard to Christianity, but I remember one in particular. It's in the second movie, and it's the Battle of Helm's Deep. Now, I'm not going to go into all the detail there, but in that battle scene, you see the, the many of the people of Middle-earth gathered together at Helm's Deep, <laughs> and they choose Helm's Deep because that's their last stand. That is a good place to defend themselves and hopefully in defending themselves be able to destroy the enemy. Well, the enemy, the Urukai and the orcs set from Saruman break through the wall and they're having to go deep into the Helm's Deep cavern and we see just what seems to be darkness and, and literally the battle takes place at night and there's darkness encroaching upon this Middle Earth kingdom, the good guys, and the bad guys are about to gain victory. Now, if you hadn't read the books, and if you hadn't heard anything about the movie, your thought would be, this is it. They're done. The, the big, uh, what are they, is it an ogre, the, the big guy that comes through the front door? Hey, he's through, everyone's coming through, We're, the movie's about to end, and everyone's going to die, and the bad guys are going to win. But of course, you know that as soon as that happens, what do you see? The sun is starting to rise above the mountain or the large hill. And who on his white horse is there but Gandalf leading a vast army that now runs down this steep slope to the rescue of all of those. And even many of the, the leaders, they're, they're killed, but now Gandalf comes to the rescue. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this is because in many ways, this is a picture of not just our lives in so many situations, but really at the end of the age when Jesus Christ literally comes on his white horse to bring redemption, full redemption, and the enemy and all of his darkness and his entire kingdom is destroyed by the power of Jesus Christ. And so we see this amazing triumph of God coming to our rescue and destroying, it says, with the breath of his mouth, the man of lawlessness, and all who would follow him. First, First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, and he will come with destruction. He will destroy the enemy. Scripture says, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. And this is a word for some of you because that is where you feel that you are at. You're, you're right there. You feel as if darkness is encroaching and you feel as if the battle's lost. God, how is it that the enemy is won? I don't get this. That is not supposed to happen. We're going to look at a passage in Scripture in which I truly believe this is a little bit of how the church felt, overwhelmed. God, where are you? I'm actually going to be going through a series of four messages based on these uh, these. Scripture passages that I'm going to be reading covering pretty much Acts 8, 9, and 10. 
And I want us to see four things that happened in the midst of that dark, dark time in the church. God is able to step into our world and take that which is so horrible, and even when we believe that the enemy has won, can I tell you, church, that is a lie. He has not won. If the enemy's speaking that lie to you, it is absolutely untrue. And we grasp a hold of that truth, and we're going to see when you do that, this type of transformation that can take place in us to move us forward. So you're there with me in Acts chapter 8. I want us to look at this scripture passage. As you're turning there, let's understand something. From Acts 1 to Acts 7, we have been seeing the triumph of the gospel. The Holy Spirit predicted to be poured out with power so that they will be empowered to be God's witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Spirit falls in chapter 2 powerfully. 3,000 give their hearts to Christ. We see the community of believers, the koinonia that's there, the sharedness, the commonness. Chapter 3 and 4, we see that a blind man is healed, and as a result of this, more than 2,000 give their hearts to Christ, in addition to the, the 3,000 that already had. There's also some persecution, and an angel sets them free from their prison. Now, in chapter 5, we continue to see this progress of the faith and the fellowship and the fear of God that falls upon his people, and God again delivers the apostles from jail. And in chapter 6, we see the needs of Grecian widows being met. And it says this, that the word of God spread even more, and even priests became obedient to the faith. Not only this, but up to this point, we have only seen the apostles do miracles to the point where it says, and this is so incredibly amazing, as Peter preaches, as he is laying hands on the sick, it says that his shadow fell on some and they were healed. What? Amazing things were happening at the hands of the apostles. But in chapter 6, we read that a man by the name of Stephen, not an apostle, he's not called an elder, at the most he would be considered a deacon. But, the, but God was doing miracles through him. And you can read about this in verse 8 of chapter 6. He was speaking boldly. He was evangelizing in the power of the Spirit. In chapter 7, he gives a defense before the Sanhedrin, a long defense. But at the end, he dies. One man dies. Now, to our knowledge, this is the first martyr of the early church. There could have been others that we just don't know about, that Luke doesn't write about, but he is considered the first martyr. Now, I want you to see what happens, and I want you to feel what happens. In chapter 8, it says this, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles who were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. See, the story doesn't end there. Now, this is where the good part begins, and it carries us 
through the next several chapters, actually through the rest of the book. But it says here in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous sign, so now not only is Stephen, who's not an apostle, doing miracles, now we see, excuse me, yes, now we see Philip, another one of those seven, what we might call deacons, regardless of the title. He was just, he's not an apostle, he's not an elder, just a deacon. He's doing miracles. Listen to what else God does through him. <laughs> he did miraculous signs. They all paid attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many, many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I want us to see that on that day, and this is, so in other words, there was a particular day in which they could mark on their calendars this was the demise of the church. This is when everything that was going so well suddenly went south. Great persecution. Church, not only was this persecution great, but he tells us the implications and what happened as a result. Everyone fled. Now, I want you to imagine yourself living in this city here, and such a persecution breaks out in our city, Lake Mary Sanford, some of you, Deltona, Deland. It is so strong that as a family, you make a choice. We have to leave. You pack up your belongings, and you leave. You flee. Now, some don't flee quite as quickly, and as a result, it says Saul went from house to house. I believe this is Luke's expression for the local church. It's not necessarily just a house, it's a house church. And they were, there were thousands of Christians, but they weren't all meeting in the temple courts. Now, we see this at the very end of chapter 5, in which it says that day after day, this is after they, the apostles were persecuted, day after day in the temple courts, and from house to house... They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Where were they doing this? They were doing this in the temple courts, and they were doing it in the local churches, the house churches. Paul is, excuse me, Saul, is going to these house churches, and he's arresting them. So he's not just arresting mom and dad and little brother. He is arresting an entire house church, 10, 20, 30, 50, however many could fit in that house. Some houses, like John Mark's mother, owned large houses. But the truth is, this persecution is so great, everybody scatters, they flee. It says here <laughs> that great persecution broke out, the church fled for safety, Stephen's death is mourned, and Saul leads the way in this persecution. And what might have been perceived as the height of Jerusalem's church growth now ignites a citywide campaign to stamp out Christianity. As a matter of fact, it tells us, Paul shares with us a little bit more insight when he's sharing his testimony in chapter 22, verse 4. He says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Paul himself confesses that when he arrested them, many of them were put to death. 
It was for this reason this powder keg just explodes in Jerusalem and everyone in Jerusalem but the 12 flees. Now, I don't know if that means every single Christian or the majority because sometimes that word all has a variety of meanings. It's hard to imagine that every single Christian fled in view of as you read further on. But I want you to imagine at least the majority flees. Wait a second. God, where are you? We were, we were experiencing such revival. We were seeing even priests coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Those who were religious, those who had studied the law, were realizing Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the ceremonial sacrifices. Jesus is the Messiah. And they were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the very one that they had persecuted and crucified on the cross. They now came to realize he also rose from the dead. Wow. And in one day, church, one day, an explosion. A campaign against Christianity is ignited. God, where are you in the midst of this? Now, can I just tell you, not all of your trials, not all of the bad things that happen in your life is due to Satan. He's not the cause of all of the bad things that we see. The truth is, especially in the beginning of the COVID shutdown, a lot of people lost their jobs. Was, a lot of Christians even lost their jobs. Was that Satan? I, I'm not sure that we can blame Satan for that. We live in a fallen world, and due to that fallenness, just bad things happen. When hurricanes come, is that Satan controlling the hurricane? I, I'm going to have to plead ignorance on this because the Bible doesn't say this. We just know that in our world, bad things happen. There are times in which your best friend that you grew up with moves to another city. And the most that you get to see them is maybe on the phone or, you know, FaceTiming or telephoning or email, texting. And you rarely see them again because they move so far away. Maybe they're parents of missionaries. Then they move to the other side of the world. Was that Satan? No. How about losing a game? I grew up in sports, and I had the privilege of losing a lot of games, baseball games, etc. I lost. I wasn't just a winner. I was a loser, too. And those losses hurt. Was that Satan? Well, I mean, of course not. We study hard for an exam. You ever do this? You study so hard, hours. And when you get the test back, you still did so poorly. And, and, and it's frustrating. It can make you feel like, God, I, I thought you wanted me to take this course or thought you wanted me to at least graduate from high school in this, really? I thought there's a reward for all hard work. Is this the type of reward you want to give me? You see, the devil is not afoot in every single bad thing that happens to you. But I'm going to tell you this, where he is afoot, he wants to use that bad thing to undermine your faith in God. Now, we see here, this is clearly a satanic attack. Absolutely. If you were to look at Ephesians chapter 6, the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms... 
And, and it, it says there, the world rulers of this darkness. And behind all of the oppression that is out there in the world, Satan is behind that oppression attacking and especially attacking his people. But not only does he attack his pe God's people, but he wants to attack unbelievers to keep them from faith in Jesus Christ, to view God as this God who doesn't care about them, doesn't love them, has maybe created the world but hates mankind and has left mankind to his own demises and that he is not a redeemer. See, these are the lies of the enemy and he wants to spread that falsehood throughout the world, but I tell you what, he especially wants to he especially wants to plant those seeds of doubt and lies in your mind as a follower of Jesus Christ. So I, I'm not concerned, honestly, when I sit down and this, a bad thing is happening in my life. With this Satan, with, you know, I want to find out, you know, if to the degree to which I contributed to it and correct that. But you know what I'm going to be concerned about? I'm going to be concerned about how I'm going to respond to that bad situation. As a church, we're going through a hard time. As people have made the choice to move on, it can hurt. I'm not saying that that's the devil. Here's what the devil wants to do, though. He wants to get in there with lies. He wants to get in there with false accusations. He wants to get in there, bring division. He wants to get in there, and he wants to destroy your faith in Jesus Christ. And for some, it feels like the world is falling apart. My home, my family is falling apart. My question then, as we go through these next four weeks, including today, is how are you going to respond? Because I'm going to tell you what, our God's heart is always redemption, always redemption. It may come today or tomorrow or next year or whenever, but the day of redemption will come. God will take that which is evil and turn it around for amazing good. And we're going to see so many examples of this. He's going to do that in your life if you can trust him. And can I be honest with you? There are times in which I go through hard times and I... I'm in the dark tunnel, and I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I have to say, God, this is hard. Can you just give me a glimmer of hope, something to hang on to, a truth, something that you can encourage me with because I want to respond to this hard time as you would want me to. I believe the church did. You know, the very first thing that they did in this hard time is they mourned. What? They mourned, come on, didn't they just claim a scripture verse and blow trumpets and beat the drums and march around the city seven times or whatever else they might do? I'm not opposed to those things. They didn't do those things, church. You know what they did? They mourned. And it doesn't just say that the weak Christians who didn't have enough faith mourned. Read your Bible. Who, who mourned? Godly men. The Greek word there? Three times in the New Testament, only Luke uses it. He uses it in the book of Acts twice and in his gospel once. It means devoted. So not necessarily godly character, but in their relationship with God, they were devoted. Those were the people that buried Stephen and mourned. 
And it doesn't just say they mourned. To what extent did they mourn, church? Deeply. It is okay to mourn. It is okay to feel a hurt, a loss, sorrow. But God wants to take our sorrow and our sadness and turn it around to joy. And he does that here. Godly, devoted men were concerned about this saint, this man of God who loved Jesus and preached Jesus. And and there's no explanation as far as why God allowed this. At least in the book of Job, we see in chapter 1 how Satan comes before God before in his throne room, and God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? Hey, have you seen my servant Stephen? And Satan says, well, yeah. And he says, well, there's no one like him. He's just, he's so devoted to me. Oh, yeah. But, Satan says, what if you were to take all of those good things and allow me into, through that hedge of protection you have about him, You think he's really going to want to follow and serve you then? And God says, go ahead, try it. And Satan went in through that hedge of protection. God, however you want to imagine it, spiritually pulling it back, allows Satan in and touches him where it hurt the most, in his family, in his own personal life. But at the end, at least we see a picture of the blessing God brings, the wisdom. There's just one thing after another that God does. He didn't do it right away, though. It took time. We may not see that Gandalf at the mountain ridge hill with the sun shining over, dawn is, is breaking upon the land tomorrow. But I'm going to tell you what, that day is coming. And it's not going to be Gandalf. It's going to be Jesus Christ coming in. Okay? And it is as we respond in a way that is so hard and causes us to dig so deeply and remain steadfast in our faith, even to the point where we feel as if that faith is being shaken, we stand because there's nothing else we can do, church. We stand in that faith. And as as we respond in the way God would want us to, You wait and see how he comes through. That is his heart. That is what he constantly does. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. So the church mourns. The second thing we see is that when they are scattered, they don't hide in caves. They do not flee for their lives and turn away from God and say, wow, Jesus, I thought you were the way, the truth, and the life. I thought you were going to bring me the good life. I thought you were the Messiah. I thought, I thought, I thought, and apparently I am wrong, and they end up turning away. They didn't do that. They stood firm in their faith. Do you know what they did? It says here in verse 4, it says those who had been scattered preached the word. I won't be scared by that word preached. It's not because they were pastors. They preached the word. That Greek word means they evangelized. They evangelized the word. Can I just ask you this? Has there ever been a time in which you evangelized? That's what I'm talking about. Sharing your testimony, that's what I'm talking about. 
That's what they're talking about. And, and, and Stephen just said, excuse me, Philip just said, I'm, I'm, I'm fleeing for my life. And you know what? I'm going to do something. And he sought first the kingdom of God. When these hard times come, church, stand your ground. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In that context is God's provision, abundant provision. How, whatever that would look like in your life and in your situation. Philip, you know what? I, I am sure that Philip mourned Stephen's death. I can only imagine the thought, what if I'm next? Because he didn't wake up the next day doing miracles, probably not. He was probably already doing this in Jerusalem. And he continued to do this when he went to Samaria. A godly man, a devoted man. Maybe he was one among those who buried him and, and mourned deeply. But the church moved on from the morning, and they began to seek first the kingdom of God in any way that they possibly could. The third thing I want us to see is that <coughs> the very first thing that Luke tells us is the story of Philip. He doesn't just preach the word, but we see an encounter that he has with the kingdom of darkness, that very kingdom that was at root in bringing destruction through Saul. Saul was a tool of the devil bringing destruction to the church. Not, no sooner does Philip leave, but leaves Jerusalem, but he encounters this same darkness. And Luke wants us to focus on that. And he does that to give us some hope. Because what is it? When he encounters these demons, when he encounters Simon the sorcerer, I didn't read the story about Simon. That can go off onto a tangent. I don't want to do that right today. But we see that when he proclaimed the truth, those who looked to Simon the sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer was demonized. He was empowered not by the one true God, but by Satan himself and did miracles in their midst. And that is why people called him the great power. They looked to him. They looked to Simon the sorcerer as the amazing man, the answer, whatever. Early church history tells us about 100 or so years later through Irenaeus, Irenaeus believed that Simon Magus or Simon the sorcerer was the root of all heresies that they encountered in their day, Gnosticism and the such and the like. Because Simon the sorcerer was so entrenched as he encountered truth, he became jealous. Why? Because people were now looking to Philip and not him. We see this encounter with the demonic, with the realm of darkness, and God triumphs. He's, it's as if Luke is saying, you know what? Triumph for the church in Jerusalem, didn't happen the next day. We're going to see some triumph in just a moment later, but you know what? It was dark for the church on that day. And all of the persecution, however many months it, it, it took for the church to flee, and it continued on, 
even to the point where Saul realized, wow, all of the house churches have broken up. I'm going to go to Damascus now, and I'm going to look for some up there. Maybe he heard that's where many fled to. I'm going to bring them back here. He was so devoted to what he believed was truth, but absolutely was not. He was so deceived. Philip stood his ground. Philip left and he preached Christ and he saw demons cast out of people. As Jesus, his disciples came to him after they went out two by two and the 72 returned to him, it says in Luke 10, 17, and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They saw a, an encounter with the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the truth of Jesus Christ, the power and authority that he had conquering the enemy, and the demons were cast out in the name of Jesus Christ. He re- Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority. Church, listen to me. Jesus himself, not just to the 72, this is what he gives to every member of his kingdom. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. All the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. God immediately, through Luke, wants you to see, hey, right now, it may not seem as if the kingdom of darkness is being broken or is bowing its knee before the king of heaven, but know this, that he will, and he gives us a picture. Even though it didn't happen in Jerusalem that day, God was still sitting on the throne. He was still reigning. He was rising up and his enemies were being scattered. And we see what happens with shrieks, many evil spirits came out. Just a little side note, for some reason, Luke focuses on paralytics and cripples. I'm sure there were others healed. Maybe there was just a special on being healed by, by God for, with, the, with the cripples and the paralyzed. I don't know, but the truth is, I, Luke, why does Luke focus on this? And maybe, and we've seen this in the Gospels, how an author will use a healing to kind of give us some light where we're not seeing so clearly. Someone being healed of blindness and then being asked, Jesus asks his disciples, So do you understand who I am? Do you see clearly? Maybe it's because these people were crippled spiritually, spiritually bankrupt, unable to walk with God because they were so bound up in the demonic. Regardless, we see the triumph of God. Now, I I don't want to dwell, lost my place here. I don't want to dwell on this much but I want us to see something here in Isaiah 35. I want us to see a picture here. And I think spiritually we're going to be able to relate to this picture. And it's actually a metaphor of the desert, of drought as you read through, of the wilderness. And Isaiah uses this metaphor several times in his book, 
but only to show when God steps in how the wilderness blossoms. Listen to what he says. Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Just pausing there for a moment. Maybe some of us feel like this. You understand the parched land in which it's just... It's just not producing flowers. It's not blooming. It's not beautiful. And we can see the destruction of the enemy in our lives, around us. The church experienced that. They saw destruction. They experienced it, church. But he goes on and he says, like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of God, the splendor of our, the, the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. And church, I want to encourage you. God is going to step into your darkness that's around you and shine the light. He will allow that which appears to be dead to suddenly come to life, to blossom, to bloom to bring life, to bring that which is green and which that seems dead and, and brown. This is the heart of God. This is redemption. Not only, it, I'm not guessing here that this is about redemption. You can read about it in the very last verse. The redeemed of the Lord, the ransomed of God, coming into Zion, the picture of the kingdom of God, gladness and joy will overtake them, it says. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I don't know, maybe Luke was reading that right before he penned these words in verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. I believe God wants to turn your mourning into dancing. I believe God wants to turn your sorrow and sighing into rejoicing. That all of that will flee away. Remember, it is not so much, is Satan at the helm of this charge, or, or is it just whatever is, what's really important is, what is your response? How are we going to respond? Fast forward to chapter 9, 31. Then the church throughout Judea, this is just a few chapters later. If you read Scholars, they don't believe that too much time elapsed between chapter 8 and the end of chapter 9. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Church, can you just say that word with me? Peace. Say it again with me. Peace. I believe this is what God will be bringing to your heart. He will be bringing a time of peace a time of tranquility. And right now it just seems like there's upheaval and he's going to settle that. I, I don't have some time frame. And then it goes on and it says it was strengthened. The church was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Right now, as a church, and it's not just what we're going through as a church, but it is each of us personally it's a hard time. It's a painful time. It's an uncertain time. We can't see ahead very clearly. And yes, church, there's mourning. 
but joy comes in the morning. I want you to consider that it was it was good that God allowed this persecution. We're going to see that as a result of this persecution, some amazing things that God did. And I'm not going to say that all of these things are going to happen in our life, but I'm going to, in our situation, but these, we're going to look at some principles. And these are the ways of God. When Moses is standing before God in Exodus 33, 34, he says, God, show me. I'm supposed to lead these people, but how can I lead them? You must show me your ways. Moses realized for him to lead, he needed to know the ways of God. God, how is it that you respond and, and act in these various situations? What are these truths that I need to convey to them? How good are you? How loving are you? How forgiving are you? I need to understand your ways so I can effectively lead these people. And God began to show him his ways. And I think we're going to discover some of God's ways in the next couple of weeks. Because it's going to be important as we move forward, as God leads us. It's hard. Are we supposed to flee and hide in caves with every hard day that we encounter? Are we supposed to give up on God? Are we supposed to truly think God is treating us terribly? How could a good, loving God do this in my life? Those are the tempting thoughts that we have, the questions that begin to stir up in us. Was their attitude in, in Acts not worth it to serve God? Scripture says, in Romans 12, it says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is not so much what goes on, but how are we now going to respond to that? You know what? I went out this morning outside of my door, and as hard as life is for me and for each of us, when I went out there, guess what I saw? I saw a beautiful day. I saw an amazing, loving creator who made a day beautiful for me and for you. I saw a day in which there's hope. I saw a day in which my God sits on his throne and he has not been dethroned. He is still good. He is still reigning. He has given us authority over every power of the enemy that we are still able to rise up we are still able, by his power, by his authority, to triumph over evil with good, with hearts that are still pursuing Jesus Christ. He is still the lover of our souls, and he has not abandoned us. He is still so good, church. And when I went outside this morning, I saw that. I saw that in just his tender care, like a little gift that he gives to us, like on your birthday when someone gives you. Have you ever gotten a, a, it's so small? And others might look at it and think it's so insignificant, but inside, maybe physically, you cry. It really meant so much to you. This is what God does for us. He wants to lead us into green pastures and beside quiet waters. He wants to restore your soul. He has not abandoned you. Our God is seated on the throne, and he is still triumphing in your life. And all that I can say is the church, they went through a hard time, and they mourned deeply. But something like faith rose up within them, 
and said, I will not be moved. God will take my wilderness and it will yet blossom. He will do that for you. Because this is the way of God. This is his nature, who he is. And my God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he does not change. And what he did then, he will do today. Amen, church? Can you stand with me? I want you to agree with me in prayer. And whatever your situation is, let's stand in faith. You don't have to understand what's going on in your life. But just know this, the truth, that God will triumph. And in the midst of mourning, he will bring joy in the morning. Amen. Father, we just ask you, Lord, that you would come to us right now in our hurt, in our confusion. And I just thank you, Lord, that you have such good things in store for your people. And I just ask you, Lord, right now, give us that hope. Keep our eyes focused on you, Jesus, seeking first your kingdom. You have not abandoned us. You haven't kicked us aside. You haven't said, well, I tried using you and you, I just can't anymore. That is not your heart. You love us. You still pursue us. You want to win our hearts. You want to settle our hearts. And I'm just asking that you would do that right now throughout this sanctuary, God. Just settle hearts. Restore hope. Build and ground faith. Keep our eyes focused on you, Jesus. Please. And I right now want to thank you by faith for all the amazing things that you are going to do. Things that we're going to learn about over the next couple of weeks. Things that you want to actually do in my life, each of our lives. Because that, you're just such a good God. Such a loving, caring, tender-hearted God. This morning, speak truth to our hearts, God. And right now, as you've spoken to us by your Spirit, let us grab those truths. May the enemy not be able to come. And pick those truths from our heart like the wayside. But plant them in good soil. Encourage us. Today, God, would you do that? In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.